All right, I love that video. I think it captures so well uh, what it looks like for us today to live faithfully wherever God has called us. And if you'd like more information about International Student Fellowship that takes place in uh, Columbus, you can come chat with me or Jason after the service today. We'll chat with you more about what it looks like to get plugged in there. But I think this captures a really compelling idea for me uh, as a recent transplant to Columbus. God is doing something in and around this city. He is bringing the nations here, people who will uh, never hear uh, about the good news of Jesus, maybe in their home countries, are being brought here. uh, And we have an incredible opportunity uh, to share the hope and the message of Jesus with those uh, who, by any stretch of the imagination, may never encounter uh, the good news of Jesus in their home country. It's a very exciting time to be in a city like Columbus. Well, if uh, we haven't met before, my name is Dan, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here for our uh, Worthington campus, along with Jason uh, Phillips, who is our campus life pastor, and uh, we are so grateful that you are here with us today. If, uh, if you are new or this is your first time uh, checking out a LifePoint church or the Worthington uh, campus, let me help you get oriented a little bit. One of the easiest ways to get some more information or begin taking a next step and uh, finding out and maybe joining this community is by taking out your phone and you can text or scan the picture of that QR code on the seat right in front of you. You're going to see several things there. You're going to see uh, a landing page that has a a link for message notes. So you can follow along the message today. There's a Bible you can follow along there in the the message notes. You'll also see a new form. Uh, And if you take a moment to fill out that new card, Jason and I will follow up with you later in this week. You can consider that like a uh, $5 Starbucks gift card. We'll take you out for coffee. Uh, We'll get to know your story. You can ask us questions and see where uh, you fit in what God is doing here at the Worthington campus. All right, if you uh, have a Bible with you, why don't you open up with me to the book of Daniel. Uh, The book of Daniel. We're gonna be in Daniel chapter two today. We are in a new-ish series at LifePoint called Exiles, looking at the Old Testament book of Daniel, or at least part of the book of uh, Daniel. What we have seen, what we've been saying, is that Daniel is the story of what it looks like to live faithfully wherever God has called you. It's the story of us saying, God, I want to honor you with my thoughts, my words, my deeds, as I engage in the world around me, no matter where we are. We've said it this way, faith is more about how you live than where you live. And that's the story we see kind of unfolding in front of us in this Old Testament book of Daniel. We're gonna be in chapter two, really the first half of chapter two today, and what I think is an incredible story. You know, it strikes me uh, that the cultural moment we live in right now has a uh, increasing number of people uh, who have grown up in and around Christianity, uh, but have decided for one reason or another to say, like, that doesn't really work for me anymore. You know, that, 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 that used to be something I was interested in, or I tried that, and it didn't really seem to play out in my life the way I was hoping it would, and I think I'm going to move away from uh, belief in Jesus or any kind of relationship with God. It, it, it didn't work out for me. I want to move on to something else. The, the label that we have attached to this process of those uh, folks who are wrestling through these things, and, and I'll be honest, some of you in this room may be wrestling through this right now, uh, but the, the, the word we use to describe that is called deconstruction. 
And it's the process of saying, hey, I've, I have this set of beliefs. They may not be mine entirely. Maybe I inherited them from a parent or a grandparent. And I'm watching them kind of crumble in front of me. And the question that is really compelling for me as a pastor uh, is what, what are the ways that the church has contributed to this phenomena of deconstruction? What are the ways that uh, church as a, as a uh, holistic group where we have not lived credible lives in front of others to demonstrate that the message of Jesus really is good news of great joy for all people. And I think the book of Daniel gives us this incredible snapshot of what it looks like to step into that cultural moment in a world that doesn't follow Jesus, that doesn't uh, know God, and demonstrate how do we live in such a way that we have a compelling or attractive faith? What does that process look like? It's kind of been rolling in my mind the last couple weeks, and I know even bringing this up, this may be a topic that is very close to home for you because you may be wrestling with uh, some beliefs that you held or, or formerly held, or maybe you know uh, of a dear friend or a son or daughter or parent who is going through this process right now of deconstruction. The question is, what does it look like for us to show up in that space, in that relationship, and not live perfect lives, but credible lives as followers of Jesus. And I think the book of Daniel is profoundly helpful for showing us what it looks like to step into that place. And it does it in a backwards kind of way, uh, in a way that makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable at first, because uh, what we saw last week uh, in the first chapter of Daniel uh, is that instead of us you know, pointing the finger and saying, hey, there's something wrong with the world around us, there's something wrong with the, the culture around us, Christians are very good at pointing the finger that way, we're, we're not very good at pointing the finger here and saying, hey, there's, there's actually something wrong in my own heart. And so what we said last week, you might remember this, is that uh, God's people, we are a wavering people. If you were here, you know I stood up on this uh, teeter, or a teeter-totter back here and looked like a dumbo as I was trying to uh, uh, balance right in the middle and basically saying, hey, this is what we tend to do in our relationship with God. We try and make it work with a little bit of what uh, God has called us to do, a little bit of what we want to do, and we try and balance right in the middle and we waver back and forth. And yet the good news is, a wavering people have an unwavering God. He does not waver. And we look to him, not ourselves, to find stability. That's what we talked about last week. And again, this week, we're gonna point the finger not outwards, but internally and say, hey, we, there's, there are some things in our own hearts that we need to be honest about. If we're gonna step into this cultural moment where people are questioning even the credibility of uh, the church at large, followers of Jesus in general, we need to be honest with ourselves. And so today, I think may be a difficult message. I think the Lord has a word for us today where, where he is going to prompt us to look and kind of search what's going on in our own lives. There may be a call to vulnerability as we begin to share some of those things that maybe we would rather not share with anybody else. You see, Daniel chapter two gives us a stunning picture of God, is one who is powerful and uh, all-knowing and 
Yes. But the picture of God in Daniel chapter two is that he is the great revealer. He is the great revealer. And the problem we'll run into is not with, you know, that God reveals things. The problem we encounter is what God reveals. That's where it starts to get really tricky for us today. So if you're not there yet, open with me to Daniel chapter two. I said this last week that uh, Daniel has some funky sections in the book where there's like dreams and visions and sometimes Daniel will have those dreams or interpret those dreams or, or give the meaning of visions in there. This is the first dream sequence that we find in uh, the book of Daniel. Chapter two, we get the first dream and interpretation, but what we're going to see is it's very fascinating how Daniel sets this up and how he records this story for us because before he tells us the interpretation of this dream he encounters, uh, he wants us to focus on the God who is able to reveal dreams. Very interesting how he puts this together. So again, not there yet, open with me to Daniel chapter two. I'm gonna read just the, the uh, kind of the highlight section uh, of this chapter, starting in verse 20, then I'll pray and we will get started. Daniel chapter two, starting in verse 20. Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you. Let's pray. Father, we pause today. This morning, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, I know that uh, every single one of us walking into this room on a Sunday morning, we're we're coming with, we got some baggage we're bringing with us. Maybe we feel weighed down by everything that went on last week uh, and just kind of crawling in here. Some of us may not even know why, what we're doing at a church on a Sunday morning. What's the point of all this? Lord, wherever we are at today, we want and need to hear from you. So we pray that you'd speak powerfully to us today. By your Holy Spirit, would you do more than just challenge our thinking, but would you change our hearts? Change our hearts and send us out of this place. Not trying to live perfect lives, but credible lives as we seek to follow Jesus in a world that doesn't. So Lord, we do love you. We thank you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let me say this now because I forgot to say it earlier. 
Notice these bags up on stage. Uh, these are from all of us who have said uh, last week, we we're saying, hey, we want to uh, provide for a local food pantry down the street from us, actually, the, the Stowe Mission House, which just opened up on 161 and Carl Road-ish. Uh, and so these foods are going over there. We're going to be providing for families uh, in this next season. This is a great picture, the generosity of our church. Friends, thank you. Thank you uh, for showing up and bringing these, uh, these bags. This is an incredible picture of what we want to do as a local church in being open-handed with our things and providing for the community around us. I should have said that earlier. I forgot to. All right, Daniel chapter two. Look with me at verse one in your Bibles. Verse one. Uh, the second year in the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Nebuchadnezzar, you might remember this from last week, was the king over the Babylonian empires, one of the greatest, most powerful uh, empires of the ancient world. He was an unfathomably wealthy individual, powerful uh, person, probably at this moment in history, the most powerful person alive, King Nebuchadnezzar. And we uh, talked a bit about the story last week where Nebuchadnezzar was kind of brought to Jerusalem where God's people were concentrated. He besieged the city uh, to conquer the city and wanted to take some of the best and brightest uh, of the Israelites back to uh, Babylon, to his empire, so he could train them up, uh, enculturate them in Babylonian culture, and kind of use the best and brightest of what the uh, Israelite culture had there. And so he has brought Daniel and several of his friends back into Babylon. That's how Daniel even got to Babylon in the first place. And we saw this on Wednesday night with Life Group United, that Daniel made a decision that he wanted to stay faithful no matter where he was at, no matter, uh, in spite of the circumstances he found himself in, he wanted to honor the Lord. And the result of that is that Daniel was considered uh, 10 times better than any of the other wise individuals in the land. That's what Daniel was all about. And so we find Nebuchadnezzar in chapter two, he's starting to have some, uh, some of these dreams. And it, it's a dream that he recognizes it means something. I don't know what it means, but he recognizes that it means uh, something. And dr- dreams are tricky. Uh, how many of you have like uh, recurring dreams? Anybody have recurring dreams? Right, where you kind of have the same thing and uh, you, you wake up, you remember what you dreamed about. I, I have one recurring dream. It's the same dream every time I have it. It's probably three or four times a year. And I'm back in my childhood home uh, and I'm playing tag with dinosaurs. And you know, it starts out great. I love this dream, you know, back in my you know, childhood home. And uh, slowly but surely though, the game gets, the, tag gets a little out of hand, right? And now I am running for my life. The childhood home has vanished and I'm somewhere in the jungle running from these dinosaurs and it ends and I wake up at the same moment every single time. I'm in the kitchen and there are uh, velociraptors trying to eat me and I'm hiding there. Now, I have recently uh, discerned the meaning of this dream. Dreams are important. I've discerned what this dream means. Uh, It means that I was exposed to Jurassic Park way too early (laughs) in life. I have it three or four times a year. Same thing to this day. I like scary movies. I'm fun watching a scary movie. If I watch Jurassic Park with Courtney, like I am like a child curled up on the couch, like barely able to watch what happens in this movie. If you wanna mess with me, dress up like a dinosaur and scare me, okay. (laughs) 
Um, but dream, dreams are kind of tricky, aren't they? I mean, dreams, we, we, we may have them regularly, and sometimes we wake up and remember what the dream was about. Have you ever been mad at your spouse because of something they did to you in the dream? Or something they should have said, like, hey, why didn't you defend me in my dream, you know? That really, if you're not married, that actually happens. That actually happens. You can get mad at each other in your uh, dreams. Uh, but for the most part, I think, I think we don't really know what to do with dreams, those, those vivid ones that, you know, you, every now and then we have one that just, it sticks with us. We're not entirely sure what to do with it, and I think for the most part, we don't really have to do a ton with dreams in general. We, we don't have a lot of luck with interpreting our dreams. They may give us some vague impression of something, but to say exactly what a dream means, we don't often venture into that territory. But this is the kind of dream that Nebuchadnezzar has in chapter two, or series of dreams. He knows something matters in this dream. He just doesn't know how to make sense of what he's supposed to do because of this dream. Look at verse two. Then the king commanded that the magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers uh, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. He is, Nebuchadnezzar, surrounded by uh, magicians and enchanters and uh, sorcerers, people who are believed in that cultural moment to be able to hear from the gods and explain these type of, types of mysteries. They're, they're able to reveal what these things actually mean. But Nebuchadnezzar can tell that this dream is so significant, right? He doesn't want to leave anything for uh, to chance. So he, he doesn't want to call this group of people together who are uh, paid uh, to tell him what he wants to hear. He doesn't want to just hear what he wants to hear. He wants to know what it actually means. And so he adds this little caveat as he's talking to them uh, in verse six. You can see it there that he's not going, he wants them to tell him the meaning of his dream, but he's not going to tell him what the dream was. He, he wants them to stand before him and say, King, this is your dream and this is what it means. You see how that works? Because if they, if they can tell him the dream, uh, then certainly they should be able to uh, you know, figure out what it means for them. He doesn't want an educated guess. And you know, uh, you know, as a little you know, side note, uh, if they're not able to do this, he's going to tear them limb from limb and kill everyone in their family. So you know, there's that. Uh, they've got a lot riding on their ability to tell him his dream, to reveal his dream, and then reveal the meaning. And when Nebuchadnezzar gives this challenge, right, the, these uh, magicians and enchanters and uh, sorcerers, they, they immediately uh, start pleading with him because what they recognize that what we recognize, that, that's impossible. You can't do that. You can't, you can't guess somebody's dream and then tell them what that dream means. This is not possible. And remember, Daniel is lumped into this group. He, he is recognized as 10 times wiser than any of these guys. And so if none of them can get it, including Daniel and his friends, they're all going to be killed in this horrifically brutal way. So Daniel's life, the lives of his friends, hinge on their ability to do by what is, uh, what is uh, by any stretch of the imagination, un uh, unimaginable. It's impossible. Right, this is not just like King is holding back some helpful information. Right? They are buried by this situation. They're buried. 
They, they cannot do what they are being asked to do. And I wanna pause here for a moment because I think there's a really interesting piece of this story we, we can resonate with a little bit. Obviously, uh, I don't think any of us are in this situation, um, but I think that there is a piece of us, some of us more than others, that can tragically resonate with this kind of uh, feeling, a feeling buried by a decision, a conflict, something that we need to do. And the stakes are not always life and death, no, they're, they're not. Some, maybe, most of the time, no. But it, it does not mean these situations are not serious. Right, like some, some of us know really well what it feels like to be buried by uh, deciding what we are going to do next or we can't make heads or tails of how we're going to get out of this mess or this thing that we have got ourselves caught up in. One, one of the areas where we can feel this like avalanche of, uh, of emotion is in our closest relationships with close friends or, or family or, or a spouse or anyone who is close enough to you to do some real damage to you if they want to. I mean, you ever been here in this moment where it feels like you try and work things out, but it always ends the same way. It's another fight. More words are exchanged, and it just adds to the complexity. There's another layer of damage that's added over, and it feels all the more impossible to get back to the way things used to be. That's the kind of feeling uh, that Daniel has right now. I don't know my way out. Have you been there? Have you been there? I love Daniel's response to this. Look at verse 17. When he gets the news of what Nebuchadnezzar has said about the dream, that, hey, you, you need to tell me the dream first, then the interpretation, and then I'll let you live. He heads back to his three friends, and his first instinct this is so backwards from what you and I tend to do. His first instinct is not to go into fix-it mode. Like, how do we solve this problem? How do we fix this? His first instinct is to pray. It's to recognize his own limitation that is so far beyond what he is able to do. Verse 17, look at me there. And Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And there's something really profound here, like a gift of what I think the local church is supposed to be. You see, see Daniel, Daniel takes this news and he goes back to his community. And he's got this group of people around him and around each other who, who are saying, we, there, there is nothing in our own strength and our own power that we can do to solve this. And they bring it back together in community. 
I mean, friends, th th this is a snapshot for us of what authentic community looks like to be uh, sometimes in the most vulnerable position you can be in uh, as a human being and go into this, bringing this to others who know you and are walking alongside with you. This is the gift of what the local church is supposed to be. Right, a church is not supposed to be a place where we just come on a Sunday and kind of go about the rest of our lives uh, as if we're not involved or engaged with, with one another throughout the rest of the week. The church is supposed to be a community, a micro-community where we know one another, where we carry one another's burdens. Not where we just, just get, you know, get our nose in other people's business, but we walk around, walk through life with one another saying, uh, brother, I wanna serve you, I wanna help you, I wanna walk with you through this season of, of, of cancer, of financial hardship, where your spouse may have walked away from you. I want to walk with you through this. It's a beautiful snapshot of community. Friends, this is why we put so much of an emphasis on life groups at our church, of being in life group, because if we are not in community with other followers of Jesus, what tends to happen is we, we just kind of fizzle out. We need community around us. And Daniel is quick to go to prayer and go to his community. Now, I, I think it's so interesting that when he writes this book, Daniel, thinking back on this moment, he records this story, he writes down, he doesn't tell us what they prayed. If you look carefully there, he doesn't tell us what they prayed in that moment. What we do know is that God responds and it's interesting, Daniel is very intentional with how he re records this story for us because he doesn't share with us immediately. Uh, remember, he, they're asking, Lord, reveal this mystery to us, and all we get is Daniel's response saying, Lord, thank you for having done this. God responds. He doesn't share with us yet the dream that God revealed or what this dream means. Why does he write it this way? I think it's because Daniel wants us to focus first, not on the answer to his prayer, but he wants us to focus on the one who answered the prayer. In other words, he wants us to focus first not on what was revealed, but on the revealer himself. He wants us to see God as he sees God, as, as the God who sees, who knows, who understands. He wants us to see God uh, who has the power to reveal. Look what he says now in verse 20. This is the context. Before he even gets to the dream, before he even tells us what it means, look at verse 20. This is Daniel's response to God having revealed to Daniel what these things mean. And Daniel answered and said, verse 20, blessed be the name of the God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. 
Right? He wants us to look at the all-knowing God, at the all-powerful God who changes the times and seasons, who, who removes and sets up kings. I mean, think about that for a moment in the, the political season that we are in right now. He wants us to look at the God who knows what's happening, why it's happening, and is even setting things in motion to happen, to the God who reigns over every other earthly ruler where no king, Caesar, czar, prime minister, or president makes a speech, deal, or division, or plan policy uh, without the very breath in his or her lungs given to them by God in the first place. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. Friends, the reason Daniel is telling us this first leading us to the revealer before what is revealed is because in that moment when he was buried, in the moments when we feel buried by our own circumstances, what we need first is not just a way out. This is so counterintuitive. What we need first is not just a way out, but what we need first is to fix our hope and attention and our affection on the one who actually reigns over our circumstances. The one who is actually in power. This is what Daniel is trying to uh, produce within us. In chapter two, he brings us to the great revealer, calls us to join him in falling down and worship before the power and might and majesty of God. And as I've been studying this passage the last couple weeks, there is something that consistently nags me with this idea as, uh, of God as a revealer. It's interesting, Daniel uh, calls God a revealer eight times in this passage. The, most, the word is hardly ever used anywhere else, eight times in this one chapter. And it's an interesting word to describe God. In the original language, it's a word that means to, to uncover or unveil or to expose. <coughs> And in this specific story, revealing is exactly what needs to happen. It's why Daniel can worship God in this moment because the revealer uh, has done what only he can do. In fact, this is why we can and should worship God along with Daniel. But there's another side to uh, God as a revealer, isn't there? Something that is a bit more problematic. So again, the problem for us is not that God reveals. The problem for us is what God reveals. And you and I can celebrate you know, God's revealing work that brings wisdom and insight. We can, we can sit along, read along Daniel chapter two and say, yes, that's what I need to hear. That you, you, God is able to, to find a way through this. But, but the fact that he reveals things that only he would be able to reveal. The fact that he does this means God sees things the way they are, perfectly. He sees what is actually going on. He sees more than maybe what we want him to see. 
You see, the God who sees, sees me perfectly. The God who knows, knows you perfectly. And there's no veil to hide, especially those things we would rather keep hidden, and all of us have something like that. And while we might, detry, might try and hide, while we might try and cover up, while we uh, might turn and run, there is no part of us that is not completely uh, seen and perfectly known by our revealer. You see, part of what it means to be human, this is, this is for every single one of us, part of what it means to be human is that there are parts of our lives that we would generally rather keep hidden from anybody else. We don't want them to come out into the light. We'd prefer if they were forgotten and everybody else could move on and yet we know that in some way they mark us. They leave a wound, they leave a scar, they leave an impact. In fact, even as I bring this up, there are things that you may have uh, that have played out in your own life that you, maybe you never told a soul. There's a fear of what would happen if you did tell them if people knew what you've actually experienced, or they knew what you were actually uh, like, and so our natural response for all of us, so often to keep hiding, to keep covering up. In fact, this goes back to the beginning of humanity. You know, uh, in the story of Genesis and Adam and Eve, when they have taken the fruit and they do the, the one thing that God commanded them not to do, their first response then is to hide shame. You may be here today saying like, Dan, that's just, that's a, that's a fairy tale, that's a story. Well, okay, maybe, but how come we all have the same response of knowing there's something we need to hide and the universal feeling of shame that we, we can't avoid. We know what it is to hide. We know what it is to cover up at least a part of ourselves from everybody else. Uh, in April 1891, uh, author and uh, poet and philosopher Oscar Wilde published what is probably his most well-known book. You may or may not have heard it. Uh, it's called The Picture of Dorian Gray. Spoiler alert, I'm going to ruin this book for you, but it's been out for like 150 years, so you know, you had time. Um, the main character in this book is uh, Dorian Gray. Dorian Gray, you can, uh, he's a man who is uh, a model narcissist. He's a model narcissist in love with himself and after seeing a portrait, not this picture, this one's not supposed to be up yet, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> after seeing a portrait of himself, there we go, hey. <laughs> Forget that you saw that. Um, after seeing a portrait of himself, he's, in, he's 18 years old, and he sees someone paint a picture of him, and he becomes so enamored with this picture, he really falls in love with this image of himself. And in the first chapter of the book, he ends up saying, I wish that I could take the purity of this painting and kind of and keep that myself, like if that would be me, and that this painting would age instead of me. 
And through the next, you know, many chapters of the book, covers 20 to 30 years of Dorian Gray's life, he goes about his world, and people slowly start to recognize that there's something, there's something off about Dorian Gray. On one hand, he's not, he doesn't look any different. He looks like this 18-year-old kid. And yet the people also recognize that, man, he, he, he's doing whatever he wants to do. Like, he is living exactly how he wants to live. doesn't matter what the consequences are, and nothing seems to affect him at all. He can do whatever he wants. But internally, as you read the book, you see this growing angst that he has because there is this part of him that he has hidden away that nobody else has seen, nobody else knows exists. And finally, towards the very end of the book, he brings one of his oldest friends, the person who should know him best, he brings him up to an attic. And there in the attic is this painting and he finally rips off the cover. And this painting that we just saw is the painting that goes along with this book. This is what was left of Dorian Gray. This perfect, pristine painting that was supposed to be pure uh, has turned into this grotesque figure. This is the real picture of Dorian Gray. This is what he has become. This is what he is so terrified of letting anybody else see. While, while he can put on a mask and go about his life in, in perfect beauty, telling, giving the exact image that he wants to give to everybody else, the real Dorian Gray has been hiding in the attic away from anybody else to see. And the way that the story ends, right, is uh, he is so, uh, rever- you know, in, in so uh, repulsed by this image of who he truly is that he goes and destroys the painting, strikes it with a knife, and he ends up dying himself. Because the painting has embodied who he really is. And friends, you see, if God is the revealer, then he is the one who sees and knows who we really are. You see, just like Dorian Gray, we have a painting somewhere in the attic that we would like to keep hidden from everybody else. You see, we do actually carry the scars and wounds of things that we have done to others, things that have been done to us. Uh, there, there is a painting that carries the full impact of every word we've ever said, everything we've ever done. And when we pull back the curtain on our own lives, we find that all of us have a picture of Dorian Gray somewhere in our attic. That we are a wavering people. And yes, church, we, we are quick to point the finger out there and say the problems with the world are... The story of Christianity does something quite different. It says, actually, no, we need to point here first. The, problem, the problems are here, too. And we contribute to it. We are a wavering people. And Dorian Gray is what that looks like because it's a picture of all of us. And yet what the amazing thing is that while we are a wavering people who go back and forth, we have an unwavering God. 
we have a revealer, one who uh, is, is not uh, fooled by what we tend to show off, one who is not duped by what we think we can hide from the world around us. You see, our God is not thrown off by the image that we project to the world around us. The good news, though, that we proclaim is that we have not successfully hidden ourselves from God. There is not one thing that you have in your attic that he does not know about right now. There's not one thing we have successfully hidden from our God. The revealer sees, the revealer knows. He is not surprised and he is not repulsed. You see, because the story of the gospel is how God sees us at our worst and still chooses to give us his best. He chooses to give us his best. Our fear, our deepest fear, is that we would be fully known and then rejected because of what people see. Our fear is that he would be repulsed, that we would be rejected, but the gospel tells us a very different story. The good news of great joy for all people is that while we look like that, God still gives us his best. We read these words in the New Testament, Romans chapter five, verse eight. Right, that what God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, you hear that line. You may have grown up hearing that line. I want you to think of the picture of Dorian Gray. While he sees us like that, he showed us his love for us. Christ died for us. He shows us his love for us. Even at our worst, Jesus gives us his best. You see, in our brokenness and our failure, that would lead to our death or should lead to our death. Jesus became our picture of Dorian Gray, all of our brokenness, all of our failure, all of uh, the scars of what we carry with us. The gospel says is uh, projected now onto him. And he is the one who takes our place on a cross, crucified, died and buried in our place for our sin. And the good news of the gospel now is that when we put our faith in Jesus, our resurrected king who has conquered and shown himself victorious over everything we would like to keep hidden, when we put our faith in him, we are brought into new life and a new way of life, life the way it's meant to be lived. Friends, the great myth about the church is that we walk into a room full of perfect saints. The reality is we walk into a room in this place as a wavering people who waver back and forth and yet we serve an unwavering God. The invitation of Daniel chapter two in community as Daniel goes back and knows the revealer and goes back to his own community with with his three friends is that we can model the life of Daniel as we go back into our community and show an incredible vulnerability of these things that we no longer need to hide. Because friends, God is not repulsed by us. He invites us to lean in to relationship and instead of running away, he brings healing to those things and those areas of our life that we'd like to hide away. I heard it said this way one time, there are things that we would like to keep in the dark, but when we bring those things into the sunlight, 
that's when we start finding true healing for those things we'd like to hide away. Some of us have things that we've kept in the dark for too long. Maybe you need to have a conversation this week. Maybe that conversation is with your spouse. Maybe that conversation is with your life group. Maybe that conversation is with someone who knows you deeply, knows you well, and loves you enough to to have a hard conversation with you. And if you need help navigating the beginning stage of that conversation, we can sit down and talk. We can sit down and chat. But there is nothing that you can shock God with. There's nothing you can shock him with. He is the revealer who sees and knows and loves. Friends, I think Daniel chapter two is an incredible invitation for us to come before our God. He was a great revealer. And while that may strike us with fear, we know that in his revealing, he shows us a deep and real Love that is far greater than anything else we can find in this world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can be here this morning, that we can open your word, and you can reveal in us what you have for us in your word. Lord, and some of us maybe even need a moment, and so as we sing, we may not even be able to stand and sing We need a moment of reflection. God, as you continue to do the work of revealing and there's great fear in being known for who we are. But in the gospel, what we find is that while we may be worse than we could have thought, we are more loved than we could hope. And so we are grateful that we uh, are able to cling to Jesus. We are able to cling to our great revealer. Lord, we pray that you continue to do a work in our hearts and minds long after we leave this place. If there's a conversation we need to have, prompt us. Lord, would you give us an opportunity to to begin that conversation? And our desire is that we would not just be a church that points the finger outward, but points the finger internally and says, God, we need you to do a work here in our own hearts. We trust you for that, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.